your name correctly for me andy Steele. and you are currently a what what's your what's your i'm an associate professor of sculpture at uncw okay one of the things i always love hearing about people is of course how did they get become creative in the first place so like were your parents creative did you have some great experiences as a kid a teacher like how did you even come down the creative path my mom was very creative she she painted and she made things she would have probably fallen into like a country craft kind of thing. Where? In West Columbia, South Carolina. And so I was always making things with her. There was always paints around and putting things together. She made like these crazy wreaths and I don't know. I don't know. But but there was always stuff that we were doing. And then my grandmother, she wasn't, she was, she sewed. And she made things. So our clothes were always made by her. And so there was always this idea of making within the family, for sure. And then you went on to schooling, I assume, since you're a professor at, I did, at, yes. at government yes, university. Yes, I am so educated, you, yes. Well, no, I mean, because there's this, like, if, if you were at a private school, you wouldn't necessarily need that terminal degree and right. all that kind of jazz. So. And it's, yeah, it's different depending on, on where you're teaching. I did. I was always interested in art. I always drew and made things and didn't really focus on it so much in high school because I was tracked a different way, but decided to go to study art. Anyway, when I went to college, when I went to undergrad and was encouraged to go into graphic design because one, my high school art teachers weren't particularly impressed with my ability. And two, it was a way to make money. It was, it's definitely, it was identified as an art, a career, a way that you could make money. So I did that. I have my undergrad degree in graphic design. From? University of South Carolina. But while I was there, I took a class that I thought was going to be a weaving class, and it ended up being a papermaking class. And my professor for that class, Teresa Zimmelin, she was a sculptor. And so she's the one that got me interested in sculpture. And in that class, most of what I made was three-dimensional. And that was supposed to be my senior year. And then I took some extra classes so I could continue doing papermaking because I decided I wanted to be a papermaker. Very lucrative. Yes. (laughs) And there's not a lot of papermaking schools that offer MFAs (laughs) or MFA schools that offer papermaking, I guess I should say. Probably true. My previous guest actually was uh, Tom Balbo from the Morgan Conservatory in Cleveland, which is all about papermaking. Oh, really? Yeah. It's an amazing place. I highly recommend it. Oh, yeah. I'll definitely go because I still love to make paper. I I do it here. I teach it here. So, So I did that and... I was looking around for grad schools, and there were only a couple that really offered MFAs in papermaking. And then at that point, I got introduced to Penland School of Craft and moved up there to do papermaking. And just, you know, I was right out of college just to live and to be. And so my boyfriend then, husband now, and I both moved up there. And I went through, they have a fellowship program, their core fellowship program, and that pro- is a two-year program, and you, you live at the school, and you work for the school, and in exchange, you get to take a large number of classes. Sweet. And it is sweet. It is, and Penland, 
for everyone who's never heard of it, Penland School of Crafts is a magical, wonderful place. And Oddly enough, I've never known exactly what city it's in. It, well, it's, it's, it's technically in Penland, but I think the school encompasses all of Penland. <laughs> so it's Penland in Penland, North yeah, Carolina. In Penland, North Carolina. Okay. Probably why I never knew what city, uh, yeah, because it's, very, it's just its own city. Yeah, okay. it's, it's very, it's very the, the town itself is very small. I, I've heard about Penland for decades, and I have yet to ever visit. You should go. I know. You should go. I'm aware. It is, it's, it's really great. And, but so I went up there and did, took some paper making classes and got into the core program, with a, which allowed me to do other things as well. In particular, I started blacksmithing. As one does. Of course, because if you're a paper maker, then of course you're going to blacksmith as well. It, it really, I had a friend of mine, I was in the paper making studio and they came over and they said, hey, you need to come watch this guy over in the blacksmithing shop. And I went over there and he was doing a demo and then they let people try it. And I was like, what? I mean, it's great. I mean, you take something solid and you heat it up and you can manipulate it into anything that you want. Oh, yeah. I've been watching Forged in Fire. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ridiculous. And those folks are really good at it. <laughs> yeah. Or or like the, what's the other Netflix one? The glass blowing, uh, blown away. Yeah. Oh, love just the idea of like working with fire to melt and restructure things. It, is- it's really amazing it is really amazing and so I, I did that and I and those were the things I focused on when I was up there so I did that program for two years but we lived up there for about six years working for the school and the the surrounding area is just packed with artists and so I did a lot of assisting for different people I assisted some glass blowers and some jewelry makers and potters so it was just a that to me is like my big that was like the turning point in my life. My big learning experience was up at Penland. And then while I was there, some folks came in from the University of Georgia to teach a class, and we started talking about graduate school. And so and so I, I, I applied to other places as well, but I applied to Georgia and ended up going to Georgia. And University of Georgia is where? In Athens. Oh, love Athens. Athens. Yes. Yeah. Another great place to be. Seriously, you're like following all the alternative <laughs> meccas here. Yeah. Okay. Next, you have to go to San Francisco, and then you'll be like doing the whole whole yeah. trail. Yeah. All right. And so then, how did you end up? So one thing I wonder about too is like, there's the old adage of like, if you can't do, you teach, which to some extent is true. That I do know a lot of teachers who are not good at whatever they teach. So this is not just art. Right. Right. But I know some people who are actually love the act of teaching, and they happen to be an artist. Like that, I I personally believe I fall more into that category. Like I love being a teacher. I happen to have chosen the arts to be the thing that I teach. Right. So like, so how did you come to choosing to be a teacher, or or did you choose to be? A teacher? <laughs> well, no, I mean I did choose to be a teacher, right. and I I do love to teach, and I think part of it is that I love to learn. And I love to be around people that are learning. It, it goes back to when I was at Penland. The one thing that really struck me, even the first day that I was up there, and I was just visiting somebody else that was taking class, the first day I was up there, is that it is a community. Like, there is a person who teaches, right? There's the teacher person. But it's not a hierarchy like it is in academia normally and so so I, I love that like the the community aspect of what was going on and I try to do that in my classes and I still learn from my students as I'm teaching them 
and it's it's kind of different from I mean it's definitely different from Penland because they don't have as much experience and it's not a specific kind of medium that we're working in all the time. Well, but but, to, to me, when I think about Penland, I, I associate it more to Black Mountain College and that sort of philosophy and sort of immersive lifestyle kind of thing. Right. Whereas when I think of a university like where you, we are right now, it's more rigorous, academic, and arts happen to be in there. Kind of thing. So it's, you know, Penland is more designed for the artistic experience, whereas like a university is more academic and they happen to also teach art true but but my part of the university is just art okay so my classroom to me is comparable to i you know i'm trying to make it comparable to an experience like i had at penland i can't control the whole university but my my classroom i work really hard to build a community so there is that back and forth it's tough though i mean i've been a teacher three different full-time at three different universities and the administration makes it sometimes kind of difficult. Like, I mean, silly, like, rules and regulations. And I don't mean silly, like, laws. But I mean, like, silly, like, can't stay after hours for whatever reason. Like, students don't get 24-hour access to the, to the studios. When I was in grad school, and I'm trying to think even maybe undergrad, we, as students got, like, as juniors and seniors in undergrad, were given 24-hour access. Whereas a lot of universities these days don't allow those kinds of things because of... Um, insurance concerns and you know all this kind of stuff and so like it's a little tough to be part of a a sort of a bigger university that have rules and regulations that are designed for every student in every discipline that then sort of also overshadow the the needs of the students in an art school i mean and, and there are i mean there are limitations for sure you know you just work with what you have you know best you know well, I don't know what best case scenario would be, but there are different scenarios that are better than others as far as teaching and, and especially trying to build a community with teaching. But it, I try in my class. And that's and, all you can do. And that's all I can do. And, and it, you know, and it doesn't, uh, some students don't respond to that as well. Or some students like to be like really given parameters and really clear and not that I don't do that with all my students but you know some some students don't work well in that kind of communal environment but what I have seen is that if students if I can take my students through 3D beginning sculpture intermediate sculpture and advanced sculpture by the time we hit that intermediate advanced classes they know each other they know each other's work they have communication and it makes our critiques better it makes the work better it makes the whole environment in the classroom better and that's my goal is to kind of build that up to where you know i might not see that with every student in my beginning level foundations course but if i can keep them together and we can continue to work together then we'll have that and just to be clear here at uncw university of north carolina at wilmington just for those listeners you all offer a ba bfa what do you offer we offer a BA. BA, okay. Studio art. And studio art. We also now have a BA in digital art and, 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 and art history. Art history, okay, great. Now, so you started with paper making, then you went to smithing. Now you don't do either of those two things no, anymore. <laughs> so, so let's get to the transition that then happened from there. Okay, so when I was at Penland, I was doing mostly blacksmithing with some paper making and blacksmithing is where I really started moving into three-dimensional form when I was in undergrad I was able to 
AP credit out of 3D design. So I never took a 3D design or a sculpture class in undergrad. I never took a, I never took a sculpture class until I went to graduate school in sculpture. All that sculpturing, all that shifting into three dimension, shifting into the third dimension, I did at Penland. And once I did that, I realized that that is where my strength is. I see three dimensionally, I can create three dimensionally much easier than I can two dimensionally. Well, and your most recent work that I know is actually sort of even additional dimensionally because it's also somewhat site-specific and or performative or experiential. So it's not just the work itself, right. but it's the act of participating in it or engaging in it that is even then added on to that. Right. So when I, when I, was, when I was still at Penland, I started creating figurative work. And I'll have to show you some pictures. <laughs> Never seen your figurative works. But so okay. I, I did some figurative work, and I was continuing to do that my, at, when I first went to graduate school. I was casting. We didn't have blacksmithing facilities at Georgia, and so that kind of shifted what I was doing. But I learned how to cast, and so we, we were casting, and I was doing different things. But then I started playing around with the idea of... I kind of shifted the work to installation work where the idea was that the viewer became the figure within the work. The participant, the person that came up to the work was the figure that was in the work instead of making the figure the, the object of the work. Does that make sense? <laughs> in a very abstract kind of way, abstract. yes, but it does. Yeah, okay. And so, so in this, you know, over... A year or so, I started developing, I started doing these large-scale installations, and it was stretching lines of monofilament across different spaces. And the first one that I did, it was in an installation class, I believe. And the, fir the first, though, we were all kind of like learning how to do this kind of thing. And I found this old, it was outdoors, and it was this old burnout building. And there was nothing but the side walls and the back wall. And I went back to the back of the building and I stretched monofilament across the corners. And of course it was clear monofilament so you couldn't see it. And there was a whole idea behind it. It was like this invisible kind of like cell structure that was there and you could go inside but it wasn't really... This is grad school, right? This is grad school. Yeah, very, okay. so very early grad school. Very pompous. Very, very early grad school. Uh, yeah. So what happened though is that the class came out to critique it, and we walked to the we walked backwards because walked to the back of this building. It was way in the back, and as we started walking, people started funneling to the center because the corners were cut off, but you couldn't see it. Like we were way away from it, but people were picking it up on their peripheral and starting to move to the center instead of out to the sides that was blocked and I was like huh now that's something right there like that little bit of that little bit of perception that little thing that we're seeing is changing where we're moving and so then I started creating with that intention going into a space and stringing up basically walls of monofilament that would alter how people could move in that space and so it wasn't just about the visual, although I did, of course, consider the visual. They're very formal and to look at. You're a graphic design undergrad. Uh, yes, I'm. No 
but but it, it became they're not complete unless somebody is walking through them and interacting with them is how I think about it. All right. And now what and I haven't seen you in 10 years or so. So are you still working like this? What what's the what's the been the progression in that time? Well, I I'm I'm doing multiple things now. I am still doing that. I am still doing that. So Okay, period. There we go. Yes. Yeah. So that's like one thing. <laughs> but then I'm also, I started this new work a couple of, I don't know how, I don't know, about a year or so ago. Well, no, actually it was longer ago than that. Maybe about three years ago, I went and took a class at Penland. Again. Again. And I took this class because I was looking at all the course offerings and I was looking up this woman's work. She had done this like, netted like large installation piece and I had been playing around with netting already or, or, or working with I was I was trying to figure out how to take them on a filament and create like a fabric with it so it, I wouldn't I wouldn't be stretching individual lines but it could be something that would move that would have the movement of fabric instead of just tautness all the time Again, I'm, I know it's it's very abstract. <laughs> it's really well, it's, hard well, no, without it's, it, visual. <laughs> well, it sounds just like uh, like polyester fabric, basically, but with bigger kind threads. of an open, open, and yeah. and and having that kind of net idea, okay. you know, it's like a fishing net, like a fishing net, yeah. And so, so I came across this woman's work. You know, they already make them. They're yes, called I fishing know. nets. Okay, but see, making is all the fun. Okay. Being Making clear. is all of the fun. So I ended up taking this class, and I did learn how to net and twine and some different kind of traditional basketry technique kind of things. But, but the netting was what I really latched onto. And so then when I came back from that, I started making body nets, like head nets that you would wear over your head and body nets that would completely, like, entrap your body. But I was doing this with this netting process that I had learned, which was tying each individual knot on the net. Very time-consuming. Super time-consuming and difficult to make fit like I wanted to. Sure. Tailoring would then come into it. (laughs) So from there, I I ended up taking this other class over at the Cameron Art Museum. And this woman showed a different kind of knotting technique. And it's called netless... No, it's called knotless netting. And so you're not tying everything. You loop everything into itself, and it creates a net. It's kind of how, like, basketball nets are made. Uh-huh. If, you know, you know, it kind of looks like that. Good visual. Like it. So I've kind of shifted. The ideas are kind of the same. I'm still trying to make these body nets. And really, I'm working mainly on body nets and then these other neck pieces. But I can use this, this technique and the material I'm using now, which is recycled T-shirts, allows me they fit anybody like they can you can pull them over your body and they fit and so I'm doing that and then the same technique I'm using to create what I'm calling neck pieces because if depending on how you do the technique it all kind of crinkles up and they kind of look like Victorian collars Uh right but they're made out of recycled t-shirts that are all these bright different colors so they'll be like red and green and blue whatever all the t-shirts in the world all the t-shirt colors but there's they'll be like one solid color and then the original thought for this was that I would make hundreds of these neck pieces and connect them all together and then there would be a happening of people that would come and wear this thing together 
Very difficult under COVID restrictions. Yes, and then COVID came and just like killed it. I've got boxes of these things just waiting to be put together. So, but that was the idea. It was kind of a way to to like bring people together, like physically bring people together in something that's kind of silly and make fun. them three feet each collar, and uh, therefore then they're I'm, six feet I'm apart. There. Just hold on. <laughs> So that is what I was working on when COVID hit. And so I have made some adjustments to that. And so now I have the collars and I've netted these long pieces between them that are six feet apart. So they're still connected and they can be connected to multiple people, but it is following the COVID rules. So you can do an exhibition of this still, regardless of how long this goes on. That's right. Mm -hmm. I actually, it is in an exhibition right now. I fancy that. So, and it, it's different, but it, it's, it gets the same point across is that I'm trying to bring people together and, and it's harder for us to do it now, but it's still possible for us to, I mean, physically together. My idea is if we are physically brought together, then maybe we can talk to each other and have conversation. And Is that really necessary though? Yes, it really is necessary. I'm so kidding. It's my job, literally, to bring people together and talk with them. So, yeah. One of the original reasons why I wanted to talk to you, though, because is because of your site-specific work. Because you're the first artist that I, well, have access to, anyways, that does site-specific works. And I'm interested in the um, issues and difficulties or things that happened that were sort of unforeseen in a positive way that that went with being site specific because keep in mind I come from a background of photography and sort of tr- very very traditional fine arts so it's like you produce a thing you put it on the wall you sell it you move on you make something else you know right. take that money invest it in the next thing site specific work no it's money involved like that. <laughs> like, you can't technically sell it very easily i mean i guess maybe Salawit could but like right. you know very very difficult to quote unquote sell so how do you sort of make that work the financial part of it start yeah I'll start there is i'm fortunate to have a teaching job and that allows me to do to do things that i may not be able to do or i would not have been able to do if i didn't have a teaching job now it has changed you know, like I, when I first started doing it, I would go out and find spaces. I would pay for everything. I would do all the labor myself. Like, I mean, I did it all right. And you know, that's just how it was. And I did it. And I did that for a long time. (laughs) I know when you're like a new teacher and you really want the jobs and you're trying to like build your portfolio and your CV and all this kind of stuff, you just like bust your ass to do all these great exhibitions. But like, once you get a full-time teaching job, then you're like, yeah, yeah, I could get a grant for that. Or I can, I can intern to help me with this. And like, you get a little lazier, like when you got the resources of the school behind you. Well, the thing is though, is that I did. I, I'm not judging you. Yeah, and well, I mean, I, I, I was saying it's different because I do get invited to some things now. And I do get stipends for some things that I, you know. As we all should. That's right, as we all should. But but I have, you Speaking know, of which, here's your stipend. No, I, I, have trans, I have transitioned to where people are familiar with the work, some people know the work, and then I can get invited to do other things. And I can make some money off of it. it could I support myself off of making site-specific installations like that? No, I could not. But 
I love to do it. And as long as the opportunities are there, I'll take them. But totally random question. Mm-hmm. This is me projecting. What What does your husband do? He's a ceramist. Oh, okay. He teaches well, and he teaches ceramics at Cape Fear. Okay, that's an interesting mix. How, how, how does that go? <laughs> I, T- I mean, two artists in a household. It goes. I mean, you know, we're fortunate. We both have teaching jobs, <laughs> and uh, but it's good actually. Our work is very different. I mean, even though we both work three dimensionally, I mean, he's he's a ceramist. He makes pots and and he makes face pots and things like that. Very clear figurative work and. My work is completely not like that. I could so it's picture abstract and conceptual comparatively. I can so picture the debate about like how to lay out the th- the, the the living room between like two <laughs> three dimensional sculptures. Like that would be a fascinating debate. Well, our living room kind of limits the choices. <laughs> okay, fair. Yeah, there. Yeah, the the situation always dictates. As a site specific artist, you know that. Yes. Right. Right. So okay. So some experiences in the site-specific world. So early on, you just did whatever you could basically to, to be able to have the opportunities to produce things, even if you had to throw money out of pocket, even if, right. like, did you even do it in places that you technically, like, weren't allowed to do it kind of thing? Mm, not really. I always had, I always had permission to do stuff, but I did, you know, I mean, I did some outside. But wait, just to be clear, so let's take it back a step for everybody that's listening because they may not have looked at your work. So your work is very time-consuming to install. So yes. I'm, specifically, I'm thinking back to that that stud, the monofilament stuff because mm-hmm. you put up thousands of lines of monofilaments. I mean, it can take you days upon days to install this thing. Right. So it's not like you could. It's not like a, a happening where you could just like go in, do an art piece, and get out. No, <laughs> no, they're not like that. And 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 that has developed over time too like the first one I did it was just a single plane that went down this long gallery and then twisted at the end and now they're much more involved than that which takes more time and I I can prep a lot beforehand like all the brackets are done before you know I would go to go to install but the last really big one that I did it was up at Holland's University up in Roanoke Virginia and it, there were four of us installing, and it took us a week. But it was huge. It was a really, really big installation. Sounds it. And so it went from you know something that I could do by myself in a day or two to something like that. As all of our works do, like I rarely see an artist that become like their work gets simpler as they get older. Mm-hmm. Like it always gets more elaborate. Your your ideas get bigger, your funding gets bigger, your spaces get bigger, your opportunities get bigger. Theoretically and hopefully right. in your career, <laughs> all those things are true, but they aren't always. But generally, that's the trajectory we hope that we're all going. So we want to be doing bigger, more elaborate, whatever's. Right. When it comes to doing these site specific pieces, have you been doing them like? Okay, so early on you did them wherever you could do them. So you, I'm assuming you wrote proposals and things like this. I, I did write proposals, and in that, and for the most part, that is still that's still how it works. Or, you know, I'll, I'll see a call for a gallery space that looks like it would be open to something like that. What What's the thing that says they look like they're open to something? Like that? Well, you know, if, if there's an open call. And all the images they have are of paintings, 
then more than likely, even if they would take sculpture, they wouldn't let me come in and completely change their space. Now that is, you know, I could be wrong. And I could make be it wrong. so there could be no paintings on the wall. Right, right. And make it to where even if there were paintings, they'd be looking through my work in order to see it. <laughs> so, Which is really cool in and of itself. Like, yeah. That becomes yeah. a whole like barrier metaphor. Like there's so much more to that. But anyway. And, so, and, and, and some of it is just reading through the call and how you can you know, and what they're calling for, like, can I submit a proposal versus submitting work that's already completed? And that's been a real difficult thing to find places that will take proposals based on images of work. The work is really hard to photograph because it's monofilament. And just so, just to be clear, though, mm -hmm. you're working with colored monofilament now. It's no longer clear. Yes, I am working with colored monofilament now, but even so, it is almost impossible to see in a photograph unless it's a, a very close, detailed shot. But what I've learned to do to deal with that is I'll take 800 pictures or whatever so I can get four that actually I can use. And when I send that stuff in for future proposals, I'll also send in the three-dimensional drawings that I've done because the drawings are opaque and people can understand what's happening and then they can infer from the images. Do you make videos of sort of like walking through it and things like I that? I have started doing that and that it, it it does help. It's still not the same as being there. Of course not. Because it's it's such a monocular, you know, the camera's only going to see one view of it where you're really, it's the peripheral and what you're picking up with your peripheral that makes the difference when you're in the piece. But for application purposes, it, it can be helpful. But again, you run into that problem, will they take a video? You know, you know what, are the, what are the limitations of what a particular proposal or a, a call will ask for or let yeah. you send in? I mean, my, my recent work in the past couple of years has become very tactile and very finished. So like mm -hmm. gloss versus matte finish. And it never shows up in a mm -hmm. single photograph. Yeah. And so it's just like, fuck, how do I show that? And they won't take videos. Because they're oh, looking yeah. for just right. images. They just want that one. That's right. And object. so like that doesn't work for me either. I know. The limitations of the art world. So RFPs, RFQs, like these kinds of things. Like So I guess the thing was like your work also, just so, so A, it's site specific. And B, as a general whole, it's not long term. Right. So it's not only site specific, but it's time specific. Right. So because it, 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 the monofilm is just not going to last for whatever reason. Well, no, it, it's they have been short lived just because of the situation they were installed in. A lot of them were in galleries, so I would have the gallery space for an extended, you know, or whatever the time frame was for a show, and then it would come down. You do have the luxury that you don't have to store any of your old artwork, though, versus every well, other I, art I form. I do so. actually have it, but they all fit in, like, really tiny bags. <laughs> Not, so, wait, you actually keep the old monofilaments? Like, I have keep it them in all. A bag? Say, like, this is the exhibition I did in this gallery. Like, do you, like, keep it labeled for, yes. like, posterity? I'm going to be famous, and one day <laughs> somebody's going to be like, we have her whole body of work right here. <laughs> do you seriously? I have a lot of it, yes. Okay, that's and, great. And it's marked. I had another guest on, and I keep still thinking about this, this idea of, like, legacy planning. It sounds like you already have this kind of stuff in your mind. I mean, I I definitely am in making at least a little bit of a joke about that. I don't... Yeah, I know. We, it, all, we all do a little bit of a joke about that. Mm -hmm. But it, if we weren't thinking about it, we wouldn't have done it. Like, I do it. I, I absolutely do think about it. And, and it's something that I'm... I guess I'm sort of surprised that younger artists don't or aren't 
told about, you know, like right. I didn't hear about, I, I'm 47 now. Nobody really sort of tried to express to me the idea of legacy planning until I was, well, 46. <laughs> so, so like I just heard about this. I mean, I've always heard the story of like, oh, so-and-so's entire stuff is in the collection of this library or this museum or whatever. And it's always like, how did they get there? Like, how did that happen? And it turns out a lot of it is, is that the artists, when they were alive, they made, well, they made the decision <laughs> yeah. that upon their right. passing that it will go there to these go collections. I'm like, so wait, so I have to choose. <laughs> like, I was, that was the other way around. I always thought an institution said, oh, no, we want that. And they fight for it after you die. But no, it's not that at all. It might be. It would be Depending lovely. On who you yeah, are. We, we all <laughs> it hope be. it will be. <laughs> but it's not. But but so like it, I like to hear that like you are thinking about this idea of sort of what I call well, like, and the and I also keep it. I mean, there's there's several reasons why I keep it. One is I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm using a material that's not biodegradable, and I. I mean, it's a mess. Like, fishing line is a mess. And I mean, basically, that's what monofilament is. And I don't want it, I don't want it to go out and never go away. And so I keep it, one, as like a history for myself. I also keep having different ideas of how I could reuse it. I was going to say, you worked with metal smithing. Like yeah. You could figure out all kinds of ways so, to like melt so, it down. And so, do you know, try, trying to figure, you know, trying to, to, but yeah, I mean, that's, I've been thinking about that a lot lately about, you know, so I hold on to it thinking that I can turn it into something else one day too. So. Okay. Fair enough. Back to sort of RFPs and RFQs and all this kind of stuff. Grants have you and residencies. They're also I'm fascinated by both of these things. So like, have you applied for any grants and residencies? Have you received any and participated in any? I have applied for grants. Most most of my grants that I have gotten so far have been either through the university or through the art the the arts council, the local arts council. I mean, I apply for stuff all the time. <laughs> we all do. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, part of it, again, is like what I do is outside of the norm and and hard to see in in photographs. And so and not to not to use it as an excuse that there's wonderful art out there and people are getting grants, but it does make it harder to kind of like show my work and, you know, what it, I don't know. Just to literally show the work is hard. <laughs> well, it's interesting because like I keep running into a lot of people, and myself included in this, is like the art world wants to pigeonhole us, but unfortunately almost all creative people are not able to be pigeonholed. You know, I was a photographer, but now I'm probably more of a, I don't know, collage, decoupage, whatever the hell it is I do now. You were a graphic designer, then you were a paper maker, then you were a Smith, a blacksmith. Now you're an installation artist, but now then you're also involving fashion, and then and then uh, you know site specific, time based experiences. Like so, like it's really hard. Like that they want us to just do one thing, but like we want to do everything. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think there are. I think there's just different categories and some of the categories are more easily defined and and some people fit into some of those categories more easily than others. I was specifically thinking (laughs) of some other professors here that like they they do their thing and they're very masterful at that one thing that they do their entire career and that's it. 
Whereas there are other people, such as you and me, probably that sort of we sort of float with our inspirations and sort of progress through different ideas. Yeah. And and because I'm kind of working through that right now. I mean, this new body of work that I'm working on, it's really different from what I was doing before, and it's all brand new. And I mean, I had I I have had somewhat success with this other thing I was doing with the installations, and so now I'm like kind of starting over, and and it's. But I want to do something different, you know, and I want to try something different. Okay, I want to ask you something. Please don't take offense to it. Okay. So just bear with the question. Okay. Your work, the, the one we're talking about, the monofilaments, as much as I, I think they're sort of very compelling and interesting, especially when you start utilizing the colors and the interactions of the colors and all this, I feel like that could get boring very quickly. Do you mean making it or yeah. being in it? You know, it doesn't. Like okay. for, for me, it hasn't. Uh, and I think p part of it is because it's site specific. They're all brand new. Mm. Like, it, like I, I cannot make one fit somewhere else because it's just not. It won't. Mm. It's not designed that way. And I've also been fortunate to, at least the over the past few years to have really interesting spaces to do them in. Like I did a piece up at uh, York College in, in York, Pennsylvania, and the room was octagonal. And so that, and, and I was like, oh, that sounds great. And then I started drawing it out and I was like, this is really hard. Like this, is, I mean, it, it, it was hard. And it was a, a relatively small shape. piece, but the, 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 the layout, so things like that make it interesting. He also, the director there, also let me paint the walls, mm. which completely changed it. Sure. And I painted the walls this like crazy green yellow color that would kind of, and it played off with the color of the monofilament really well. So things like that, like new opportunities that are new ways that I could do that work with the stuff that I haven't done before keeps it interesting. Do you also work with like um because I'm a photographer so like I'm thinking like do you also work with like light and shadow in that whole scenario as well? Um, I, I do in uh, lighting. <laughs> lighting is problematic. <laughs> I remember we had a discussion about this when you started doing this pro uh, project in Wilmington many years ago, where you asked me about lighting. Yeah, yeah, because it's uh, so the monofilament inherently runs light. I mean, it just it. The, Inherently, it's not the right word. Mon not, the, no, the, monof the, rod light. the monofilament will catch the light and it will run down the line. Okay, I got you. Yeah, right. like, like, a, like a fiber optic. Kind of like a fiber optic. Not to that extreme, but kind of like that. And so it casts a little bit of shadow, but not as much as you would think. And when you, if you don't light it, if you don't have direct light on it, it looks one way. And then if you put direct light on it, it looks completely different. And so all of those things have to come into play when designing it. And I mean, to be honest, it is the one thing that I do not have complete control over and am still learning how to do. Focusable light is what yeah, you mean. Yeah, focusable light or because sometimes it's I'm just at the mercy of whatever they have, you know. It's true. Yeah. But I mean, but like like a fluorescent sort of like you know, a diffused light would be horrible for that work, I would think. I would think directional light in some way would... Well, dramatize the, it a little. The thing about that is years ago I did one here in our gallery and we have both. We have light diffuse light and we also have spots in the gallery. And I kept going back and forth about which way I wanted to light it. Because if you 
if you just use diffuse light, it becomes about the forms. You mm -hmm. see the forms that are made. And when you put direct spotlight on it, it becomes about the light play on the lines. Which I'm so all about. So that's what I'm right. trying to encourage. And so for, for me, it's about the forms. And it's about creating these spaces, you know, places where you can go and you can be inside of or outside of. And so when the, the light was too intense, it breaks that up. It, it breaks the forms up. Certainly, yeah. But I will say, when I've had photographers come and take images for me, they want to pop that light on there like nothing. <laughs> they just want to just... But, but then, again, when I look at the pictures, when I look at the photos, it is not the piece, it's mm. the light. Well, yeah, that's what photographers do. Right. Yeah, yeah, We're horrible like that. <laughs> All right, anyways, back to residencies. Have you done any? The only one I've done is No Boundaries. I did the No Boundaries International out on Bald Head. I have not done residencies because I have children and I can't leave them for extended amounts of time. Perfect segue for me <laughs> to the to another question, which is basically, you know, sometimes we, I run into people who talk about how having children has caused whatever in their life. So whether it, it refocused you or distracted you. So like, how does being a parent uh, affect your career and your perspective on being either a teacher and or an artist? I mean, Simple it's, question, right? <laughs> it's, I just, it, it's, it's just all about finding a balance, which is hard. Okay, just to be clear though, how many kids? I have two kids. Okay. And they are 11 and 15 now. Well, okay, the reason why this comes up is because in Europe, okay, a lot of, well, I shouldn't say a lot of, some of the women that I have interacted with, specifically, I, I will make this a gender-based thing, like women, they often will take five or six years to basically be there for the child until they go to school kind of thing, and then try and get back into the art world. And the art world is like, well, where have you been for six years? And so there's this, basically this gap in their CV. And so they have a lot of difficulty in returning kind of thing. Men, not so much. But for men, oftentimes it's that they have to refocus their priorities in their life right. kind of thing right. um, you know whether it's needing to make more money to be able to then you know support the family etc cetera, etc cetera. so there are lots of different things that come up for artistic people that have kids versus artistic people that don't have kids so balance okay so let me see i was thinking what was i thinking you mentioned balance I did mention balance from almost the beginning of when i had children I have been teaching and making art, right? I mean, I was making art. I was doing those things before I had children. But when I was hired at UNCW, my daughter was 10 months old. And coming into teaching and then coming in to, as, as part of my job, is the expectation that I make art and that I exhibit. I did not stop because I, I couldn't. Which was great. It's just hard, you know, to 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 find that balance. But I I continued to work, and I was doing mostly installation work. I continued to work and do those installations. I mean, from the time before my daughter was born un, until now, and I think the 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 scale of the work and it getting larger and more involved has kind of happened as my children have gotten older and I was able to leave them longer. You know, if I couldn't, if I could, or once they got 
so big that I couldn't take them with me. Well, but it's also so. partly that like you you were probably doing fewer works but bigger scale because you couldn't be away for very long. But the few times you could get away, you could do a really big piece. Kinda. I mean, I, I hadn't you know I haven't ever really thought about like that timeline and how the work has changed you know based with my kids. But now I will think about Here that. Here we are. But it it so for me it was a good thing that I was in the situation that I in the fact that I kept working and the work continued to develop but but even now you know balancing teaching children and trying to make art is hard <laughs> it's ridiculously hard <laughs> okay well actually I'd, I'd like to talk about this which is the the my wife isn't in the arts, nor is she in academia. And I have many friends who are not in academia. And they're always like, well, why are you working so hard on making all this artwork if your job is teaching? And I'm like, yeah, you don't get it. Like, to be a teacher in this era, which this may not have been true decades ago, but it is true now, you must be exhibiting, publishing, whatever thing for your own right. medium or whatever. Like, so like, I have to be making artwork, whether it's being exhibited or not, it's almost irrelevant, but like I have to be producing something that maybe someday will be able to be exhibited kind of thing. Like you have to keep up that skill and that technique and that ability because we can't keep our jobs if we're not exhibiting as studio artists. Right. Well, and, and that is part of it. I mean, that's definitely part of the motivation. There are expectations that you have to achieve in order to move forward. But I think the other answer to that is that we're artists. Like, I mean, you oh, make yeah. art because, I mean, I, I, that's what I enjoy doing. Like, you know, is, is making art and trying new things. And, and I, I mean, all of my work, like you've seen the monofilament pieces, thousands of lines stretched, thousands of knots tied to make these things happen. This new work that I'm doing is the same. I mean, there's always this just ridiculous like really kind of ridiculous, <laughs> repetitive action. And that I love it. Paper making is the same way. Like you do the same action over and over again, or blacksmithing. I mean, it's, and that to me is, is why you do it. It's so you, you make something and the physicality of making. That's why you do that's it. That's why I do it. <laughs> I was <laughs> going right. to say, it's not that's why, why I everybody do it. does that's it. That's right. <laughs> That is that is very true, but it is a big part for me. It, it's almost it's almost meditative for me to go to work in my studio. Wait a second, you have a studio? I have a room in my house that is a studio. Okay, I'm always fascinated as to whether or not people choose to have studios or whether they choose to use a room in the house. Basically, well, this is actually it's it's it's, it's relatively new within the past couple of years that I have had a, a dedicated space in my house. Because my thought always was, you know, this is my job. Art is my job. I'm going to go and do it. But again, that's a hard balance because I need to be at home for certain things. And so now I have it set up. And both the installation work and the work I'm doing now allows me to work in a relatively small place, space. And so I can do it at home. 
I mean, I, of course I have dreams of having like a full studio where I could set up a smithy and have my paper making set up over here and, and then have my clean room. And not that I never work in a clean room, but I'm sure people do, you know, but, but I thought like they, that's where they make like computer chips and like clean right. rooms. <laughs> So like, yeah, I, I can't imagine that as an artist studio thing. But, you know, like having, I mean, it would be great. And my, my husband and I both discussed that, you know, putting some large building. Yeah, I always think of like a our, barn. Bigger than our house, yeah. behind our house, so we can have a studio. But. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm looking at uh, shipping containers to like construct out something yes. with that, that kind of that stuff. That is all the rage right now, for sure. Well, in Europe, it's super cheap as well. Oh, yeah. Like the whole modular buildings and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like, I mean, because for a studio, you don't need much walls, solid floor, light, Maybe some water. internet, water, air conditioning, heat, depending on where you live. That's pretty much it. Like, yeah. And then you're going to trash it. <laughs> like, there is no reason to put nice finishes in a studio. Because, like, I've. It's funny, we had the, I had this issue when I was here in Wilmington with uh, some developers here where they said, oh, there's this great old building and we're thinking about renovating it and turning it into artist studios. And I'm like, shh, stop. Don't renovate it because the artists are going to trash it. Just leave it the way it is. Just put internet and air conditioning in and rent it. Like, don't repair it or don't use like nice, polished, whatever finished finishes because then you're going to outprice the people who actually need this space. Right. But that's gentrification and that just sort of annoys me across the board. So, anyways, teaching. I love teaching. You enjoy teaching. You've been doing it now here at the same place for 15 years. 15 years? Almost 15 yeah, years. 15 yeah. years. How has it changed for you? Have you noticed any changes? I'm not asking you to be critical of obviously this one university you're working at, but like the students, have they changed the, the, the expectations? Because like I find, I still teach, and I find that the students have become a bit more complacent and they become even more sort of, they expect an A. Like I have to tell my students every semester that like A does not mean attended. <laughs> it, 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 a actually is you know, right. exponentially good quality work. Uh, like I, I, when I, when I had my full-time classes, I used to sit in my, my first day of class. I'd say, okay, everybody in this classroom has a zero in my class. Now prove to me you deserve a better grade. And I'd lose like half the class. <laughs> like they just drop the class because the, the students seem to think now that they start with an A and they can lose points over the course of the semester. And I'm like, no, no, no. Literally, this is first day of class. You have zero points in my class. I've never met you before. Now prove to me what you deserve. But they don't seem to think that way often, or at least my students didn't. I, I don't know if I, I'm trying to think if I've seen a, a, a difference. I think there's always students that want A's. I mean, all students want A's. I didn't care. A C was good enough for me. Well, and there, I mean, well, yeah, I shouldn't say that because there are definitely students that are okay with with not getting the A's. I think it's, I think in art especially, I think a lot of times there's that expectation that oh, it's art, I should make an A, and when they don't. It's shocking. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the ones who take it as an elective. Uh, yeah. Or, or, or even, you know, some that don't are if they've excelled in K-12 and then they come up here and it's a, it's a different thing and you have different expectations and then they don't make A's. That can be very difficult. But 
there's always a range, you know, there's, there's always, there's always a range. I, I, I don't think that there's, I don't think it's gotten particularly worse. I think there's always going to be those folks that are just killing it and doing all the work and trying really hard and getting those grades. And then there are the folks that are not. Well, but, and, and I love the students that are killing it and working really hard. But my thing is, is like specifically in the arts, because of course this is what this podcast is all about is nobody gives a shit about your grades. Like literally I've been out of school for, I don't know, 25, 30 years now. And I'm in academia and not a single person has ever asked me my GPA. Nobody cares in the arts. They care about your portfolio. You right. make good work. Right. That's all that people care about. But those about. things should correlate. Not necessarily, because I have had horrible teachers that gave me shit grades, even though I made great work. Or vice versa, where they gave me really great grades, but the work was, that I made for them, I thought was absolute crap. Well. But it met their criteria, so I got right, an A. Right. Uh, you know, and... It, it is a difficult thing. I think grading in general is a difficult thing. I wish we arts. couldn't grade. Yeah, I wish we and, didn't have to grade. And and it, it there is definitely a society really pushes that everybody needs to have A's and you all need to. Because I do think about that every now and then. You know, what if what if we just didn't have grades and you just made the work? Wouldn't you know, that be amazing? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. I think, you know, it would take pressure off the students. It would take pressure off of us. But that's not the world we live in. No, we live in a institutionally standardized, comparing, data-driven kind of thing. I mean, even the, the student feedback things that come at the end of the semester, we get like, basically, we as teachers get graded by the students, which I hate so much like so passionately I was teaching at a school and the, the they sent out the the we called them cellies the student evaluations mm -hmm. and they came back and they said Matt we're not we don't want you to come back next semester because the students didn't have fun in your class <laughs> and I was like I'm sorry since when did students having fun in my class become a criteria <laughs> for academic education and they're like at our school and I'm like, then I'm perfectly fine not teaching at this school if that's your priority. But it is yeah. some schools' priorities. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of competition to hold students. And uh, but yeah, that is one of my most favorite evaluations was from a woman, and she said, "This was the hardest class I've ever taken," and she was outraged. You know, like it, and it just went on. And I was like, good. It's not supposed to be easy. No. If it's easy and you know how to do it, then why are you taking a class? You know? So, I, I mean, to me, because, of course, at first I was, like, angry. But then I was like, nope, that's exactly where I need to be because it, it should not be easy. And if you start at one point, hopefully by the end of the semester, you're at a much higher point in understanding of what you're doing. But there is that sometimes where if it's, if it's hard, then forget it. I don't want to do it. But sometimes. And then there's those folks that are down in the studio right now making things. And I love the students who sneak in on weekends when, they, when they're not supposed to have access and they really, really now want do, access. Just so you know, we do allow them access. <laughs> I was not pointing fingers at you or, or the school. I was just saying in general, like, 
the students who would like go out of their way to try to get even more access like right even if they're like not very talented I like their chutzpah. The motivation. Yeah. That motivation will take you a long way, you know? A motivation oftentimes will take a, you know, a C student to a B because like, even if they don't necessarily produce amazing results during the the time span of that class, you got to give them a little bit extra props just for the the amount of effort they do put in. Won't necessarily give them an A though. That that one I refuse. But a C to a B I'll do. I'm a horrible I'm a horrible teacher this way. I'm so mean, I know. And you're no fun, obviously. So. Oh, I'm great fun. Well, okay. No, I'm probably not great fun. But in the in the end, they will be very knowledgeable about whatever topic I teach. Period. That's the point. That's my point. Right. That is the point. Yeah. But I'm old school that way. I'm a little outdated. I probably should you know, keep up with the times. But anyways. Last bit of questioning advice so on one hand for young artists that potentially would be your students but also for younger people who are thinking about going into academia or younger people who are thinking about going into site-specific artworks anything any part of your life that you think is that you have some worthy advice for the worthy next generation advice. if you want to be an artist be an artist don't let people tell you it's not a job or you're not going to make a living or whatever rule it is because there's no guarantee in anything that you do that you're going to get a job and make a living so you might as well do something that you love and the fact is you can make a living I'm, we're surrounded by artists every day that are making a living doing what they want to do are we really we are really okay we are really and it might it might be the person that is paints as a living or makes sculpture as a living or it could be the designer or the, the person that designed your shoes or the clothes that you like to wear. All those people are artists. Or it could be the person that is the museum curator or is running your local nonprofit and setting up shows for artists in the area. Like all those people are art related and there are, you can do it. Like I've seen my students do it. They're out working as artists, sculptors sculptors working as sculptors which is not an easy life well the film industries here also well so and there's help. there's film as well i mean so there's there's all kinds of ways that you can do it but you know your education should be about what you want to learn about and what you want to build your knowledge on when i was a kid my my parents said they gave me a deal they said okay we'll pay for four years of college we don't care what discipline you study but you have to get a bachelor's degree that was the only thing. So, so of course, I chose the most ridiculous majors I could come up with. And, of course, I ended up now in the arts. But, yeah, I mean, it, in the end, like, those kinds of degrees and the education, like, they're just the starting point, really. They're, right. They're, they're not the it's end. It's the very beginning of your life. Yeah. I mean, like, look at you. You what, you started off as a graphic designer, commercial artist, graphic right. designer, whatever, and you went through paper making and then blacksmithing and now installation art and all this. I mean, so, like... People seem to think like the, the, the higher education is the end all be all. And it's like, no, nah, it's just the beginning. That's right. It's still learning. It's not. Well, it's not even, the, but it's not the end of learning. It's just no. the start. It's the yeah. foundations of what's going to be your whatever career or future education, whatever. Right. All right. Any other advice? I don't know. 
teaching. I mean, same kind of thing. If you like teaching, teach. If you don't like teaching, don't. Yeah, there are, <laughs> there are a lot of people who are not good teachers who are in the teaching profession. You know, you should enjoy it. And then as, as far as site-specific installation goes, advice for that, you have to find your own way as to how that works. And it all depends on what you're doing. And I don't know, that's kind of open-ended. I don't know what kind of advice to give with that. Just if you have an idea, go for it. Well, Somebody it, will do it. There's, there's some gallery out there that will allow you to come in and do that thing. Well, it could be a super specific thing. Like don't work too large scale unless you have storage. <laughs> you know, like, like you, you, know, you well, may... Well, actually, one, one of the things I do teach my sculpture students, especially when they get up into intermediate advanced, because... Here at the university, we are mainly a metal fabrication studio. They, we do a lot of metal fab. And they make these things, and they weigh a lot. And, and do I'm they like, fit through doorways? And, and they don't fit through doorways. And I'm like, you have to, you do have to plan that. Cut that thing in half and then mechanically put it together when it's installed. Like, those are really important things to learn. I myself have this very large casting that I did. <laughs> And it is in a place now it will never be moved from again because it's it's ridiculous. It takes like four or five people to move it. Oh, yeah. I've had those works. I ended up destroying them. So, you know, it's uh, there are a lot of just smart uh, choices you can make as far as that goes for sure. But that goes for really all art, not not just site-specific or even sculpture. But All right. Well, lovely. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you.